I have, I've heard it said that uh, for most Christians, the problem of nothing is a more pronounced problem than the problem of evil. Uh, what I mean when I say the problem of, of evil, I mean the conundrum, I trust you've maybe grappled with this in some form, of how an all-powerful God could be good, but allow the suffering that is so present and pervasive in our world. The problem of nothing is maybe something that you've never considered, at least not in that term. The problem of nothing would be the problem of how an all-powerful God, the all-powerful God that we meet in the pages of the Bible, can credibly claim to be alive and active in the world when so often we pray and nothing seems to happen. I wonder if you can resonate with the problem of nothing. The, the problem of the apparent invisibility, the hiddenness of God. And we, we read in the pages of scripture of a God who delivers his people from bondage in Egypt, right? With a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, a God who sends plagues upon his enemies and parts the sea to deliver his people. We read of the son of God who raised the dead physically with a single word of command. And yet this God who we worship, this God whom we've gathered to praise this morning, he does not choose to exercise that same power very often in our own experience. Uh, we struggle, do we not? When the goals and the aspirations that we have for our lives are trampled underfoot by circumstances outside of our control, even though perhaps they were good aspirations in godly dreams that the Lord certainly could have easily brought to fruition. And it just seems as though he's missing in action. Maybe it seems irreverent. Maybe you, you fear expressing it because it seems unbelieving, but you do wonder at times, God, where are you? Why are you so silent? Why don't you act in accord with your, your character and your promises when life becomes unbearable, when evil is advancing, when suffering becomes intolerable? Why doesn't he intervene in noticeable and obvious ways? Now, if, if you can locate yourself in that struggle, whether you're here this morning as a Christian or perhaps as a thoughtful non-Christian, if you've grappled with such thoughts, I think you will resonate with and you'll see something of your own experience playing out in the book of Esther, which is uh, the book of the Bible that we're going to be studying together over the next month, Lord willing. Uh, if, if you 
have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles now to the book of Esther. Uh, If you're going to use one of those Bibles that we have provided for you under the seats, uh, you'll find Esther beginning on page 410 of those Bibles. Uh, Most people today live in a world that looks a lot like the one described in the book of Esther. Maybe not in every way, but at least in this particular way, where events and situations show no obvious or blatant action of God in the midst of them. Most of us, all of us, have never experienced a conspicuous miracle or an indisputable divine intervention. Uh, For us, it often appears as if God is absent or hidden from view. And it's, it's just that experience of God's apparent absence, call it the problem of nothing, if you want, that helps the Christian to treasure the book of Esther. The book of Esther makes a distinctive theological contribution, and it is this matter of the apparent absence of God. Uh, Author Brian Gregory, in his commentary on the book of Esther, says, On the surface, God appears to be absent and uninvolved. In reality, however, under the surface, he is providentially at work to accomplish his purposes and to deliver his people. God is present even when he is most absent, when there are no miracles dreams or visions, no charismatic leaders, no prophets to interpret what is happening, and not even any explicit God talk. And he is present as deliverer. That is what the book of Esther contributes to our understanding of God and his rule in the world. And as we study this precious book together, it is my prayer for you that you will be helped to live, in the words of of John Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, to live upon God that is invisible, and yet whose saving faithfulness has become visible to us in the person of our Lord Jesus. Uh, This morning, we're going to start by looking at chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 18. And I'm going to read that in its entirety, though I'm going to break it into smaller chunks, and I'll I'll note some observations along the way that we'll read the next part. Uh, I'll just let you know up front, this is not the shortest sermon I've ever written. That's all I'm going to say, and I'm not going to make apology for it, because someone admonished me that I ought not to make apology for such things. Just this week, I was admonished. A happy admonishment it was for me. We'll see how you feel about it. I don't intend to keep you here for multiple hours. Um, If I were to summarize this portion, before I start reading any of it to you, if I was to summarize uh, this portion of Esther in a sentence, it would be something like this. And I think actually not only is this a summary really of this passage, but in some ways it is a summary of the book as a whole. Amidst a flood of debauchery in the world and the compromise of his own chosen people, A faithful God is silently at work to bring his sovereign, saving purposes to pass. I'll say that one more time, but if you're a note taker and you didn't get it, 
I'm pretty sure this sermon is going to be online by the end of the day, but I will say it one more time. Amidst a flood of debauchery in the world and the compromise of his own chosen people, a faithful God is silently at work to bring his sovereign saving purposes to pass. And to help us think about that summary sentence, I want you to observe from this passage uh, three, three observations. A costume kingdom, a compromised queen, and a concealed director. And you could, you could put a capital D with that director, a divine director. A costume kingdom, a compromised queen, and a concealed director. I'm going to start reading eventually. A little word about how I'm going to read. Okay, so if you just look there at Esther 1.1, it says the, the man's name is, how would you say that name in Esther 1.1? That was really a jarbled. It's an awkward name to say. It might say Xerxes, actually. You may have a Bible that says Xerxes. That's his Greek name. I'm going to use his Hebrew name, and that is Ahashverosh. So I'm going to, ooh, it's like, ooh, da. So I'm gonna, I just want to put it out there right now. I'm just going to say Ahashverosh. There's a few reasons why I'm going to say Ahashverosh throughout this whole series. I'll probably have to say something like this every week, though it will be briefer. Uh, this book, the book of Esther is a very precious book to the Jewish people. Um, and so this, this, this is ingrained in my childhood. The man's name is Ahashverosh. And I just can't even, I don't even know how to say it. I was trying to say it in English and I kept stammering over how to say it. I'm just going to say Ahashverosh. But I learned something this week about the Hebrew name Ahashverosh, which I think is interesting and I'll put it out there. This is maybe even humorous for you kids. The, the, you know how names in the Hebrew Bible, oftentimes it, someone is named because their name sounds like a word. Like Isaac is called Isaac because his, his name sounds like laughter, which is what Sarah did when she heard that she at her old age was going to have a baby. They named him Isaac, which sounds like the word for laughter. Well, the, the, the name Ahashverosh is like the compound of two words. Uh, the, the word mehosh means ache or pain, and the word rosh is head. So this man's name is like King Headache. And that's kind of funny. I'm glad that you chuckled because it's kind of funny, and I think it's intended to be kind of funny because this man's got nothing but headaches in the book of Esther. That's what we're going to see. So I'm going to call him Ahashverosh. Kids, you might want to even count how many times you hear, not just in the sermon, but actually in the passage of scripture, how many times we meet and how many times this, this king Ahashverosh is named. Let me pray real quick and then we'll, we'll start reading. Father, we do, we do thank you for this book. We need your help. Uh, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We don't need charismatic leadership. We don't need charismatic communication. We need your spirit to act in conjunction with your word to bring help and strength and encouragement to your people. And so we ask that you'd be pleased to do that in our midst this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. Esther 1.1, are you ready? Ahash, I'm going to say Ahash Verosh. You were really surprised. You were mar marveling at that name. King Headache. Now in the days of Ahash Verosh, the Ahashverosh who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahashverosh sat on his royal throne in Shusha, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed 
the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Shusha the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerosh. So we'll just, we'll just pause there for a moment. If you, if you heard the description of King Headache's kingdom, and you thought to yourself as you just heard me read that, like, whoa, that's, that's, that's pretty lavish. That's pretty impressive. This man seems like a pretty big deal. If you got that, then you got the intent of the author in penning this introduction. Uh, we are talking, it's important that you notice also, we're talking about real history. This is not just some story, this is history. Ahasuerosh, again, also known by his Persian name Xerxes, he was the king of the Persian Empire from the year 486 to 465 BC. And this story, we're told, opens in the third year of his reign, 483 BC. This is history. And we're told at the beginning of the passage of the expansiveness of his reign, over 127 provinces. And if we were to do modern day geography, it's a vast realm. It's a vast area from Northwest India and Pakistan and Afghanistan and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Iran and Iraq and Armenia and Azerbaijan and Syria and Lebanon and Israel and Jordan and Turkey and Northern Greece and Egypt and Libya and Eritrea and Northern Sudan. This is a huge domain that King Ahasuerosh is ruling over. And so in the third year of his reign, Ahasuerosh calls all of his officials uh, together, his servants, the whole army of Persia and Media, all the governors of the provinces, because he's in the middle. This is a, a historical nugget. We don't have this from the text, but we have this from history. He's in the middle of strategizing for another military conquest. He's got northern Greece, but he wants the whole thing. And so he's preparing a military battle against Greece. And so he's gathering everybody together to show off his great strength. And so he gathers these dignitaries together for this great exhibition of King Headache's pomp and power and wealth, right? He's, he shows it all off. And you see, it's, it's like a six-month, right, 180 days. It's like a six-month Mardi Gras celebration, all the wealth and the splendor capped off then by a week-long celebration for the whole city, for everybody, the small and the great. And it's like everything goes here. The only rule is that there are no rules, right? You see that in verse 8. There is no compulsion. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This sounds an awful lot like our culture. No compulsion. 
Do what you want. Follow your heart. But for all the wealth and the pomp and the splendor and the decadence, the kingdom is about to be exposed. It's about to be unmasked. It's a costume kingdom. That's what I mean by a costume kingdom. It's all a facade. Uh, as the, as the, the Danish fairy tale puts it, the emperor has no clothes. That's what we're about to find out as we keep reading. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbanah, Bigtha, and Abgatha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerosh. Just so you know there, my philosophy on other names other than Ahasuerosh, I think you know this, but I just say them confidently, and I trust that you're not going to know if I said them wrongly. <laughs> I'm really only concerned about Ahasuerosh's name in this text. So anyway, when they, he, he, he gathered these seven eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with, his, with her royal crown in order to show the people's and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerosh, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerosh. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerosh commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerosh. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. So, so here's King Headache. He's about to get a headache. Well, all his men, boasting in all his wealth and splendor, uh, drunk out of his mind, it seems. And so you can, you can guess where a, a group of godless men who've been drinking in excess, where their conversation goes, it, it goes to women. And so he, he summons Queen Vashti. Let me, let me tell you about my beauty queen. He wants to show her off. 
And so he summons her through these seven eunuchs to come and exhibit herself before this drunken party of men. Uh, it's what you think it is. This is not a polite, this is not like me meeting a visitor to the church after the service and getting acquainted and saying, I'd love for you to meet my wife. Come meet her. She's a lovely woman. That's not what this is. It's, it's erotic. It's exploitative. It's evil. And really what unleashes the drama in the book of Esther is that Vashti shocks the world by saying, no, she's not going to have it. That is a huge insult to the king. And in an instant, it deflates the ego of this king and exposes him, not as the mighty and powerful king he appeared to be in the first nine verses, but it shows him to be puny and petty. Here's this mighty king trying to rally his noblemen to, en uh, to enter into battle, but he can't even successfully command his wife. He's got all this power, but he cannot bend the will of one human being. And so he's no longer merry with wine, but he's drunk with rage, and he doesn't know what to do. And what, what follows, I, 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 I don't know if you picked it up in the reading, but it, it's just a comedy of errors. If you read this plan and it seemed ridiculous to you, I think that's the point. This one man, Memukan, stands up. He escalates the crisis, the, 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 uh, the crisis right? He, he blows it out of proportion. He says, this isn't just about the king. This is going to affect everybody. This is going to start an empire-wide women's live movement. We've got we've to stamp this down before it gets out of hand. What if the women hear about this? And so they, they, they come up with, they, they do what bureaucrats know to do. They make a law. And the law is, I mean, it's a silly law because it, the law is basically giving Vashti what she wanted in the first place. Vashti wouldn't come. So they say, you can't come. Okay, that's just kind of what she did already. She didn't come. The king cannot control his wife with a decree. So what is the cabinet's idea? Let's control all the women of the empire with a decree. Since a decree didn't do anything to summon Vashti. They're terrified of what's going to happen if word gets out about what Vashti has done. So what do they do? They publish throughout the whole empire what Vashti has done. The whole thing just looks absurd. And I think that's the point. In the snap of a finger, this Persian king comes off looking like a, a wine-guzzling buffoon. These people drink too much and they seem to be thinking too little. King Ahasuerus seems so mighty, but he's actually pathetically weak. This writer wants us to see that the emperor has no clothes. That what looks invincible and impressive in this world is actually a facade. It's, it's all a false and artificial appearance. It is an illustration, I think, of what the Apostle John wrote in the first century. The world is passing away along with its desires. 
It's just what we're seeing here in Esther chapter 1 is just a little sneak preview of what the prophet Isaiah foresaw in Isaiah 23, 9, when he said, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the dishonored of the earth. And we get this picture in Revelation chapter 18 of the kings of the earth. This, the downfall of Babylon, all, that, all the great pomp and splendor and wealth of the world's system. And we're told in Revelation 18.9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. And we're getting just a little hint of that here in Esther chapter 1. Now, I, again, I, I, I humorously joke that this isn't my, it's not going to be the shortest sermon I've ever preached, but I, I don't want to, I, I could drill down here a lot for application. But I, I wonder if you might just do some self-application or some community application, maybe talking to someone after the service or sometime this week. How might you be tempted to put your hope and affections into things that are fleeting and fading away. If you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Christ and you are living happily for this world and all its pleasures, it would be good for you especially to think about that. But I think it's a good question for all of us to think about. Whether it's politics or possessions or exotic experiences and pleasures, or physical attractiveness, or health, what the world calls beauty, whether it's money and retirement savings. The world is desirous of you craving for all the things that King Ahasuerosh had, but God's word exposes the vanity of it all. So I, I would encourage you to consider that. What, what is it that I'm chasing? It, it is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Is that really going to satisfy me in the end? Or in the end will I be shown to have been chasing a mirage? As, as John Newton put it in a wonderful hymn based on Psalm 87, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, Solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. Now, if there was one group of people on the planet in the 5th century BC who should have known that, it was the Jewish people. And as the story continues, uh, we meet a couple of Jews in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins of the, uh, to the harem in Shusha, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king 
be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, we, we know from the time marker, I didn't read this part, but in verse 16, we, there's a little time marker, and so we know that a few years have passed, around three years have passed since the events in chapter 1, and what we know, again, from history is that the king's armies did advance against the Greeks and suffered a humiliating defeat, and the first readers of Esther would have known that, and so the ego of Ahasuerus has already been further wounded, and we're told here he remembers Vashti. Not certain of this, but the Hebrew seems to imply perhaps he remembered with some regret and remorse. He, he perhaps regretted the rash, foolish edict that he had given. And perhaps his counselors, knowing what a loose cannon Ahasuerus was, they try to figure out a plan to soothe him. And so their, their basic plan is to have an international beauty pageant, if you will. Send out royal officers throughout all the provinces, gather all the young virgins, and put them in his harem. Right? They, they would keep them all under custody and pretty them up, and then you can try them out, king, one by one. And the one that pleases you, you make her the queen. Uh, it sounds horrific because it is horrific. It should not be glamorized. It was not a, it was not a sweet thing. The king was going to add to his collection of living dolls. Uh, those chosen would live in secluded splendor for the rest of their lives, even if they were only rarely taken out to be played with. And just think of how disposable women were in this king's world. And how disgusting that is. It wasn't just women, though, actually. It was men, too. You, you've heard the references there to the eunuchs. Uh, a historian from this time by the name of Herodotus confirms that during this time, around 500 uh, boys a year were taken captive by this king and castrated that they might be employed in his service. Uh, male or female, there was only one reason why people existed in this empire, it seems, and that was to satisfy the lusts of the king, especially his lust for power and his lust for sex. And in this flood of debauchery, we're introduced, as I said, to two Jews. It's a pretty stark shift that takes place in verse 5. We've been hearing all about Persian pleasures and wealth and politics. And then in verse 5, we're told, now there was a Jew in Shusha, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Shusha, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and 
with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was, how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerosh, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerosh into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So we're introduced first here to Mordecai, which to us maybe now sounds like a Jewish name, but that's only because, as I said, uh, many Jews have taken the name of this figure in Esther. As I said, it's a very precious book to the Jewish people. Uh, but in that day, Mordecai was not a Jewish name. It was a Persian name. And it was a name specifically with reference to the, the false god Marduk. So he's got, a, he's got an idolatrous name, Mordecai does. And we, we see that he is an exile. Right? Verse 6 makes this very plain that his ancestors, during the time of the king Jeconia, they had been carried away from Jerusalem among uh, the captives. And so... Here, Mordecai is now, several generations later, living in exile. And verse 6 there really draws attention to his exiled status. Literally, verse 6 reads that he'd been exiled from Jerusalem with the exiles who had been exiled, with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar exiled. He's an exile. Exile defined Mordecai's existence, and it defined Esther's existence as well. She, we're told, is the younger cousin of Mordecai. She's an orphan. We don't know how that happened, but Mordecai's been raising her as his own daughter. Uh, and she is the only person in this book who goes by two names, right? She's referred to there by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which means myrtle. There's a couple of wonderful passages in Isaiah that speak of the transformation of the whole world and the beauty and joy of God's redemption, how the, the, the thorny bush is going to become a myrtle. And that's what the name Hadassah means, myrtle. 
So she's got this Hebrew name, but her Persian name is Esther, which also seems to be built on the, the Persian goddess Ishtar. So both Mordecai and Esther are straddling two identities. They're living in two worlds. They're Jews, but they're exiled Jews, living in an idolatrous land and bearing idolatrous names. They are a compromised family. She's a compromised queen. Now, there's, there's some ambiguity in that word compromise, which is why I chose that word. I think it reflects the ambiguity of both Mordecai's and Esther's character at this point in the story. A person can be compromised because something's been done to them, or they can be compromised because they themselves have done wrong. Right? So, so you, we, you could say that your personal information was compromised because of a security breach. Some hacker got in to, to a, a breach of security. Your information was compromised. You didn't do anything wrong. It was done to you. But then also someone can compromise, right? Uh, we think of Peter, the apostle Peter, when he denied the Lord Jesus, he compromised his commitment to Jesus. And frankly, as I've read chapter two again and again and again and read various commentaries, I think it's clear that Esther and Mordecai are compromised, but I'm not sure which of the two categories they best fit in. I have a lot of, un I don't know if you felt this as you read, I have a lot of unanswered questions as I think about the way that these two are described in this chapter. We don't really know what's going on in Esther's mind. Perhaps it's our default to assume that this was all against her will, that she was violated and seized and that may be, but we don't know that. We don't know what was going on in her mind. Was she enjoying this? It, it's probably likely that some of the women, even though this was wrong on Ahasuerus' part, that some of the women may have seen this as an opportunity to live in lavish splendor. We don't know what was going on in Esther's heart. Is she taking advantage of this situation and using her beauty to rise to power? We don't know her motives. Everything's murky here. At least that's what it, the way I read it. Does, does she really have any other choice? Did she have to break the law of God by eating the, the king's food? Did she have to sleep with a man to whom she was not married? Did she have to marry a pagan king? Why does Mordecai tell her to keep silent about her ethnicity? Was that shrewd or was that cowardly? Why didn't she dare to be a Daniel? You know the story. I mean, I couldn't help but think of the story of Daniel. Similar story. Not exactly the same circumstances, but you know, they were put in the king's court and they very boldly said, listen, we're not going to eat this food. We're, we're Jews and we're going to live this way. Why, why didn't she say anything like that? Why didn't she stand? You know, I, I can understand. Some people say, well, she... she she was, a, you know, she's, we're talking about the king here. She's, she's a victim. Well, Vashti stepped up and said no. Why didn't Esther say no? Why were they even in the land of Persia anyway? We know historically, and we know from scripture, that in the year 538 BC, the, the, the Persian king at the time, Cyrus, he issued a decree that the Jewish exiles in the now dismantled Babylonian kingdom, that they were free to return to their land and rebuild the temple. 
It says in Ezra uh, chapter 1, whoever is among you, this was Cyrus's decree to the Jews, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what the prophet Isaiah had told these people that they should do when they were released. Go from Babylon, Isaiah 48, 20. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Why weren't they doing that? Why are they there in Persia? And I've just put a lot of questions out before you. And I don't know the answers. I don't understand why. But I think it is clear when we think of those two ways to consider the word compromised, that they are compromised. Are they victims of evil or are they perpetrators of evil? My best answer to that question is yes. But I'm not sure. And you know what? That's kind of how life in two worlds is, isn't it? We can relate to that. This would be something else, perhaps, for you to discuss later today or this week. Life in this world, in allegiance to our King Jesus, often confronts us with choices that are not always easy or clear-cut. And we might like to think that every decision is very simple, straightforward, and black and white, but it's not always that way. For those of us who bear the name of Christ, we also struggle with straddling two identities, do we not? We are, our identity is at the most fundamental level. We are citizens of heaven. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are called to put on the new self, to not be of the world. And yet we know what it's like, even though that is our fundamental identity, we know what it's like to have that old self, that sinful nature still clinging to earthly things and tempting us to be defiled. We even uh, considered that last Sunday when we considered that call to bring holiness to completion, right? To cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Don't we too know the difficulty of being compromised and maybe even confused about what our part was? And what our part wasn't. How were we victimized? And how were we perpetrated? Maybe that's particularly evident in, in some broken relationships, perhaps. A broken relationship with a spouse or with a parent or with a child or a close friend. And you wonder, was, is it my fault? Is it their fault? And maybe you don't know. Just like, I don't know what to make of Esther and Mordecai here. There are consequences to disobedience. Whether that disobedience is your own or whether that is the disobedience of others that have been done towards you or whether it's some ambiguous mixture of the two. In, in Esther 2, we see the bitter fruit of disobedience in all its ugliness. Even if we can't pinpoint who all is at fault for the disgusting and deviant immorality that is on display. But what's unambiguous for the ones who have eyes to see and ears to hear, is that there is a concealed director. The Lord God Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords, who has the ability and the wisdom and the kindness to turn our disobedience or the disobedience of others that have been done to us into his own glory and his people's eternal good. 
God's omnipotent and invisible hand hovers over every detail, moving the pieces into the place that he has determined, even through sin and through compromise, to achieve his saving purposes in the lives of his people. Did you notice, as I read through those two chapters, most of two chapters, we'll we'll pick back up at the end of chapter two next week. Did you notice that in these sin-stained chapters, there has not been a mention of God? Did you notice that? And maybe some of you know this about the book of Esther. That's going to be the case throughout the whole book. Esther is the one book of the Bible where... God, and I don't just mean the name Yahweh, but just God, in ge- he's not mentioned. He's not mentioned once. He doesn't speak. He's not spoken of. He's not prayed to. And that omission is, I believe, intentional. I can't imagine that the author came to the end of writing and thought, Ooh, oh boy, I, I forgot to mention God, actually, in the, in the story. That's an intentional omission. Because it is meant to tell us that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. I'll say, I'll say that again because I've been talking a long time now. And that, but I think that's an important quote. That comes not from me. That's from Karen Jobes in her commentary on the book of Esther. God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. We read these two chapters. It all just seems so random and ridiculous. Why did Vashti throw away her position and her privilege? Why did Ahasuerus make such a foolish demand of her in the first place? Whose idea was it to replace Vashti with a better woman gathering up all the young virgins in the empire? Why were Esther and Mordecai still in Shusha? Where, 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 where they could easily have identified her. If they'd been back in the promised land, it was far more uh, likely that she would have escaped their notice, but she's right there in the capital city. Why, why did she mysteriously find favor in the eyes of everyone who she seemed to come across, including the king? Well, if you have a bulletin in front, see, I, I read these two chapters, I, I, and, and you know, Gabby wanted to know, I know it all looks goofy. Gabby's, you know, she hasn't been, she's been sick this week. So if those bulletin, if those, you say, that, that looks kind of off. The, the bulletin looks off. The insert looks off. That's, that's, we, we miss Gabby. We miss you, Gab. Uh, hopefully she's back in the office this week. But um, I didn't know what to put on the front of the bulletin. She wouldn't know what to put on the front of the bulletin. I'm like, I just read the two chapters. I'm like, I have no idea. So I just went with Proverbs 21.1 because it sums up the whole thing. The king's heart. Ahasuerus' heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is absent from this story, but he is everywhere present in chapters 1 and 2. When that king got drunk and flew into a drunken rage and banished Queen Vashti, God was at work. And I want to be very careful in saying that because I do not want you to hear me say God made him a drunk man and made him an evil pervert. God does not do sin. He doesn't act sinfully. He does not cause people to sin. But in the same way we're told, and Jason preached a whole sermon on this back in the summer, in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph's brothers, they meant evil against him and they were culpable for that evil. But the text says in Genesis 50, 20, God meant it for good, right? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's a whole bunch of evil 
going on in these chapters, but God means it for good because God is going to use these seemingly ordinary events, these seemingly sickening and evil events. He's going to direct these events to put a girl on the throne as queen who is a Jew, who is going to be in just the right place at just the right time when a serious threat to the Jewish people comes, which we will read about next week in chapter three. If Esther had not been in that position when this threat came from the evil Haman that we will read about in chapter 3. If she'd not been in that position, then her people would have been killed off. And God's promises to Abraham, the patriarch, would have failed. And if that happened, if the Jewish people had become extinct here, there would be no Jewish Messiah, no Jesus, no Redeemer, no salvation for any of us. But God was at work. God was at work in all of the evil and all of the filth, bringing about the hope of the Lord Jesus. God, the God of all creation, the God of these compromised Jewish exiles, wrought a salvation from the Jews for all who would repent and believe, not just of the Jews, but from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And he, he vindicated the, the claims of the Lord Jesus by sending him, by raising him from the dead. And we read about it earlier. Jason read the passage in Acts chapter four of all the evil, all of the evil of Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews all conspiring against him to do their will. But in it, God was at work doing his will, which was to bring about the salvation of his people. He had predestined to save a great multitude of sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation, the compromised, the condemned, the unclean, and to rescue them from the damnation that they deserved, that we deserved, so that we might be made heirs of God and citizens of his heavenly kingdom. It's easy to look at the people in this chapter and just to look at this story and see how dark and evil and perverse and wicked it is. And it is obvious. But do not think, beloved, do not think that there's more evil in Shusha than there was in your own heart. This text is a mirror into our hearts and the grief and the revulsion that we have in considering some of these details ought to be appropriated to the revulsion that we would have in thinking about our own hearts, which are desperately sick and wicked above all things. Right, Jeff mentioned last, I think you did in Genesis 6-5, right, that all the intentions of man's heart were only evil continually. That's a description of all of us. That's not just some perverted people in Shusha. We all, Paul says this, we all were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a picture of us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, his kindness appeared in Jesus and there's no Jesus coming if Esther doesn't end up next to the king in Shusha in the 5th century BC. Because the people would get extinguished. 
But the kindness did come. Jesus' line was preserved. And when he came, he saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. In Jesus, we have a better king. I mean, if that's not the understatement of the eternity, a better king than King Ahasuerus. A king who prepares a great banquet for his people, but does not expose them to shame, but he lavishes them with grace and mercy. Not forcing sinners to come into his feast unwillingly, but inviting them gently, wooing them and drawing them, inviting the weary and the burden to come to him to find rest because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He gave up, this king gave up his splendor and wealth and riches and made himself lowly and unlovely, laying down his life to win for himself a bride who was unclean and condemned, but he cleansed us through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And that all seemed really hopelessly unlikely in Esther 2.18. In this flood of debauchery in the world and this compromise of his own people. Only with the benefit of 2,500 years of hindsight is it possible for us to see the ways that God was working at that time for the good of his people. And so, beloved, I'm, I'm landing the plane now. I'm not apologizing. God may seem hidden to you today. It may seem as though he's remote, aloof, inattentive, But look to the cross. Look to the cross of our Lord Jesus. Look to his empty tomb. Look to his enthronement, which was made possible through the enthronement of a compromised queen. And remember that even your own sin and compromise are no barrier to his forming beautiful pictures out of our smudged and stained efforts. Even though we can't see God acting, it does not follow that he's not doing anything. Okay, I've been talking for a lot, so I just want to say that sentence again because that might be the main thing I want you to take away. I hope the other things I've said illustrate this and help you understand how I can say this. But I want you to understand this, beloved. Even though we can't see God acting, it does not follow that he's not doing anything. God's work is not always in your face plagues and parting of seas and bodily resurrections. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, it is a quiet faithfulness to his promises. In the seemingly ordinary providences of life, bringing about in the lives of his people what he has purposed for us in Jesus Christ. And he will bring every last one of those promises to pass, for all of them find their yes in him. Praise God that our king, he is seated on his throne.
Oh, come, let us adore him. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for your rule and reign. Uh, when, when tears are great and comforts few, we do hope in mercies ever new. And we have sure reason for hoping because our King, Jesus, has been exalted to your right hand. You vindicated all his claims by raising him up and seating him at your right hand. And so we look eagerly toward that day when it will be proclaimed the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. And he will reign forever and ever. We long for that day. We long for you to visibly and dramatically break through the heavens and wipe every tear from our eyes and make all things new and judge all unrepentant evil. But until that day, Father, help us to not grow weary in waiting upon your invisibility. Help us to trust that you are at work when we can't see it. And may we give you praise and honor all the days of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.